Well, we are uh, nearing the end of the book of Daniel. Uh, this is sermon number 22 in the book of Daniel. We're getting close to the end. This uh, incredible, amazing, prophetic book, it is so precise, so exact in what God revealed to Daniel. And we have been able to get a glimpse of what God has done and what he will be doing in the years ahead. We're in chapter 11 this week. Uh, Having looked last week at the very interesting window into the world of angels and demons that was revealed to Daniel in chapter 10. And remember, this section of prophecy that we have in chapters 11 and 12 is the prophetic information that the demons were working so hard to prevent Daniel from receiving in chapter 10. This is the prophecy that the angels and demons were fighting over. The first 35 verses of this chapter, of chapter 11, are from our perspective history. Or the first 34 are history. Verse 35 is kind of a transition verse. Uh, They they have already happened, and if you were to research uh, phrase by phrase those first 34 verses of Daniel 11, you would see in meticulous detail... Uh, That was given to Daniel, uh, all about the history of the Persian and Greek empires and their relationship to Israel. Historians have been quite amazed at the precision of Daniel's prophecies of the kings and kingdoms that rose and fell in the 350 years after Daniel wrote all of this. But because it is all history, I have elected to just do a brief overview of these first verses, the first 34 verses of of, uh, Daniel 11. We're going to focus today on the latter portion of the chapter. Uh, As we study Bible prophecy, and if you've been with us or have connected with us uh, digitally in some way over these last number of of weeks as we've looked at Daniel, remember that as we move toward the end time, that Europe is going to rise again. And there will be a ten-nation confederacy that will be a dominant force in the world. Remember, we've talked about all this. You've been with us during our study of Daniel. You'll remember some of those prophecies. As the end draws nearer, this ten-nation confederacy is going to come under the control of the Antichrist. The Antichrist will make a treaty with Israel that will bring them peace and security and protection, which they certainly don't have right now. And it appears they're going to be granted the right through this treaty to rebuild a temple and to reinstitute the Old Testament sacrifices. This treaty, we learned a few weeks ago, is going to mark the beginning of the 70th 7 of chapter 9, the seven-year tribulation that we know of from the book of Revelation. The Antichrist then is going to break that treaty right in the middle of this seven-year period. And Jesus said in Matthew 24 that was going to unleash a time of great trouble in the world, worse than it has ever been in the history of the world. Now, God continues to unfold to Daniel that the chastening of the children of Israel is going to go on and on and on until the end times, until the time of the Antichrist. Their sin and their continued rejection, continued national rejection of the Messiah, was going to bring chastening from the Lord to the nation of Israel for a long time. And we know that the promised land was overrun and dominated and oppressed and plundered by Gentiles for many, many centuries. Verses 2 through 35 in chapter 11 detail for us the oppression of Israel and its people under the Persian and Greek eras. Some of this material is kind of an expansion of what we looked at back in chapter 8. The Persians controlled Israel for about 200 years. 
And the Old Testament books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther all fit into that time period when, when the Persians were in control. Then Alexander the Great came along <clears throat> during what we call the intertestamental period between the Old and New Testament. Alexander the Great came along. He defeated the, the Persians. He took control of the land. As you know, we've talked about him in weeks past. He died very young. His empire was divided four ways. Two of those divisions had a significant impact on Israel, the Ptolemies in Egypt and the, uh, Egypt and the Seleucids in Syria. You may remember our discussion of, uh, a couple of weeks ago of Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, he desecrated the temple. He slaughtered a pig on the altar of God. He demanded that everyone worship Zeus. He massacred thousands of Jews. He was wicked and arrogant and vile. And finally the Jews rebelled and won some measure of independence uh, and, and, and they cleansed the temple. And they still celebrate that event today in what we call the Feast of Lights or Hanukkah. Hopefully you recall at least a detail or two of some of those studies from, from, from past weeks. So through all the Persian period... Through all the Greek period, the people of Israel continued to experience oppression and domination by Gentile nations and empires. Why was that? Well, verse 35 of chapter 11 kind of answers that question. He says, some of, them shall, some of those of understanding shall fall. He's referring to previous verses there. And he says, this is the reason, to refine them, to purify them, to make them white until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. In other words, the, 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 chas the chastening of Israel was still had an appointed time, the purpose being to refine them and to purify them and to make them white. What he simply meant was that the whole purpose of all of these troubles that Israel has experienced for the last uh, almost, almost 3,000 years, 2,500 years, has been to it has been for their spiritual purification. It is to refine them. God has always used suffering to do that. In the New Testament, the Apostle Peter wrote that the Lord will perfect us after we have suffered a while. The Apostle James wrote the trying or the testing of your faith works patience or endurance. And God tells Daniel that the spiritual purifying of Israel is going to continue until the time of the end. Now when we come to verse 36, which is where we're going to start today, because those first 34 verses, you can read them sometime if you get out a history book. You can pretty much trace exactly what, I mean, Daniel told exactly what was going to happen with all of those kings of Persia and Greece uh, for, for, for the next 300 years. In almost, it just, it's unbelievable precision. But when we come to verse 36, we kind of leap across the centuries to the final king, the Antichrist, and we meet him in verses 36 to 45. We see those first verses, the Persian era, the Greek era, the era, now the final form of the Roman era, the final chapter on the chastening of the people of Israel. We're going to see the counterfeit Christ who makes a treaty or a covenant with Israel. He promises to protect them. And then in the middle of the seven-year tribulation, he breaks the treaty, desecrates the temple, blasphemes God, brings about the Holocaust of the Battle of Armageddon, which ends then with the return of Christ. If you were with us in our study at the end of chapter 9, when we looked at that great prophecy of the 70 weeks, 
Uh, that's the, the 77s as we speak of them. Uh, we spoke about a gap of time that appears to be in the text between verse 26 and 27 in chapter 9. And here we see another gap of time between verse 35 and verse 36. When he says, then the king shall do according to his own will. You wonder, what king is he talking about? And when you read the rest of what we're going to study here in just a moment, this king that's mentioned in verse 36 can be none other than the Antichrist. Because there's, there, is, there is no one in history who fits this description. Nobody who had any connection to the Jews fits this description. So suddenly, as he's talking about all these various kings, then in verse 36, the angel says to Daniel, then the king shall do according to his own will. And Daniel, of course, he's writing all of this down. In, in Daniel's day, he didn't know all of it was, was, was prophecy for him. But the first 35 verses, that's all history. That's all happened even before the time of Christ. But so, who's this next king? No one has done these things we're going to read about. The, the only person it could possibly be is the Antichrist. So we know that there has to be a gap of time. Now, I'll, I'll tell you, some Bible students, I just saw one on, on Facebook the other day who was making a mockery of us talking about the end times. And uh, all the end times already happened back in AD 70, he says on his, on his, on his post. And all you, all you guys looking for the return of Christ, you're all, you're all nuts, you're crazy. You know, there, there, there are some people who don't think there's a gap of time in this passage. But I believe there is for several reasons. I may be giving you more information than you want, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. So, so hang on. First thing in verse 35, when he talks about the time of the end, until the time of the end, that is a fairly common term that deals with the last things in human history. It appears again in verse 40, it indicates things in the future. Secondly, the scope of this prophecy goes way beyond the Persians and the Greeks. The angel told Daniel in chapter 10, verse 14, he says, Now I'm come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days. So from the very beginning, this prophecy was said to stretch much further than just Persian Greek times. Third, we can follow with precisely accurate detail all of the prophecy up to verse 35. But when we come to verse 36 to the end of the chapter and into chapter 12, we have no historical data that can relate in any way to the, to the things that happen in verse 36 to 45. At the end of verse 36, it says, All of this is going to prosper until the wrath has been accomplished. You see, right at the end of verse 36. All of this is going to prosper till the wrath has been accomplished, for what has been determined shall be done. The wrath, when it talks about the wrath has been accomplished, the book of Revelation very clearly tells us that the wrath of God is going to be poured out on the world during the Great Tribulation, and that has not happened yet. Fourth, the description of this passage that we'll look at detail by detail parallels other descriptions of the Antichrist. When we come to chapter 12, it describes the Tribulation followed by a resurrection, which happens at the end times. And then the last three visions in the book of Daniel have ended with some mention about the Antichrist. So it would seem ordinary that this vision would follow that same pattern. So as I say, I may be giving you more information than, than you want, but I just wanted you to know that there are good 
biblical reasons why we interpret these verses as referring to the Antichrist. Verses 2 to 34 have already happened. Historians have documented that. Verse 35 is a continuing process, but verses 36 to 45 are still future. So we have another gap, another big gap of undetermined time between verse 35 and verse 36. And so we sweep across thousands of years of history to the final world ruler, the one we call the Antichrist. And let's read part of these passages here. Verse 36. Then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, and speak blasphemies against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished, for what has been determined shall be done. He shall regard neither the god of his fathers, nor the desire of wisdom of women, nor regard any god, for he shall exalt himself above them all. But in their place he shall honor a god of fortresses, and a god which his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. Thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign god, which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. We'll pause there. We'll finish the rest of the chapter in just a moment. But we see a very interesting description of the Antichrist, and we're going to group these thoughts into three different things, into three different ways. First of all, we see the Antichrist's character. Then we see his conflicts. And then we will see his doom. So we see the Antichrist's character, then his conflicts, and then his doom. First of all, in these verses, we see his character. What will he be like? Many Bible students, according to this verse, have called him the willful king. Because it says in verse 36, he will do according to his will. Remember in Daniel 7, the Antichrist was called the little horn. Daniel 8, he's called the king of fierce countenance. Chapter 9, he's called the prince who is to come. Second Thessalonians 2 that we looked at last week, he's called the man of sin or the son of perdition, who is, which is a Hebrew expression meaning he's doomed to destruction. Revelation 13, which you looked at a couple of weeks ago, he's called the beast. Here he's called the king who does according to his will, the willful king, meaning he's an absolute dictator. He will rule alone. He will rule with total selfishness. He will rule with a self-centered focus. And behind the scenes, moving it all along is Satan himself. He's going to have the full cooperation of demons. He's going to establish an absolute worldwide dictatorship. And he's going to pull it off by performing signs and wonders and miracles to deceive people, as we saw last week in 2 Thessalonians 2. So he is going to be completely willful and self-centered. Then our text says he's going to be filled with arrogance. He said he will exalt and magnify himself above every god. He's going to be filled with arrogance. Some Bible students who reject the futuristic view of this prophecy, they say, oh, this is referring to Antiochus Epiphanes again. And I will grant you, Antiochus was very arrogant. But he never magnified himself above every god. In fact, he very religiously worshipped the gods of the Greeks, and he tried to force the Jews to do the same. But the ruler in this passage has magnified himself, has set himself up above every single god. The Apostle Paul makes that very same point in 2 Thessalonians 2, 
when he talks about the Antichrist, saying he will oppose and exalt himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now you may know some egomaniacs out there, but a guy who sits in the temple and says, I am God, that's the, that's the greatest egomaniac of all time. And by the way, you notice it says, he'll exalt himself and magnify himself above every God. Unbelievable arrogance. He's not just going to say, I am a God. He is going to say, I am the God. So he's not only willful and arrogant, but the next phrase tells us he is profane. He speaks blasphemies against the God of gods and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. He's going to speak blasphemies against the God of gods. Revelation 13, we see the same thing. There was given unto him, a, talking about the beast, the Antichrist, a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he opened his mouth to blaspheme against God, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and those who dwell in heaven. Students of Hebrew tell us that this word implies he is going to speak things that are unbelievable. His blasphemy will be shocking. He will go farther in blaspheming God than anyone ever has. Not only so is he willful, arrogant, and profane, verse 37 tells us that he is perverted. You know, there are three areas of life that, that are normal human behavior. Most everyone has some inclination toward these three things. Family ties, religious connections, and an interest in the opposite gender. It's pretty much ordinary for every, every single human being. As they're growing up, certainly in their youth and their growing up years and in their young adult and adult lives, you got family ties, you got religious connections, and you got an interest in the opposite gender. Pretty normal for most all of us. But this passage tells us that the Antichrist is not going to be normal. He's going to be perverted. It says he is not going to have regard for any god. He is not going to have the regard for the gods of his fathers. He's not going to have regard for anything that any of his relatives have ever done. He's going to have no family ties. He's going to have no, no religious connections, no religious traditions from his family. And he's going to have no interest in women. Now, some people in reading this have interpreted that to mean that he's going to be a homosexual. Others say that he will just be so wrapped up in himself that he won't have any attraction to the opposite gender. Either way, he'll have no respect for his heritage, no interest in women, no respect for God, which makes for a twisted person. He has no capacity to love anything or anybody but himself. Human beings have always had a basic instinct for spirituality that kind of comes out in our desire to have something spiritual to believe and to believe in. You see it all around the world, but not the Antichrist. He is going to be perverted. And you know, in looking at our world today and who we seem to choose for leaders, I think the world is ready for somebody just like the Antichrist. Willful, arrogant, profane, and perverted. We have some leaders like that now already. And when the Antichrist comes, I think he'll just move right in as the, as the world leader. It's going to be just as smooth as silk the way he transitions. But our text goes on to say that he's going to be motivated by power. You see, rather than have inclinations toward family ties and interest in women and religious connections, in their place, 
Verse 38 says, In their place he shall honor a God of fortresses. You say, what in the world is that? Well, that Hebrew word is used six times in this chapter. Verse 1, verse 7, verse 10, verse 19, verse 31, and here in verse 39. It comes up six times in this chapter. Every single time it means a strong place or a fort. What it's referring to is military power. He is going to worship military power. You know what you do when you worship something? You devote yourself to it. You give your resources to it. You spend money on it. The Antichrist is going to build an incredible war machine. And I don't mean a science fiction robotic war machine. I mean, I mean his spending on military development is going to be unbelievable. It's going to be intimidating to anyone who opposes him. He is going to worship the God of war. He's going to worship the God of military might. And those next verses go on to say that those who, who acknowledge him and his power, he is going to reward them by giving them land, perhaps nations. He says he will act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign god, that is, the god of fortresses, which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory. He shall cause them, other people, to rule over many and divide the land for gain. In other words, he's going to take control of the world, and those who acknowledge his power... He is going to give them positions of leadership and possessions of land. So he'll cause them to rule, verse 39 says, and, he, and they will divide the land for gain, meaning as a reward. So he's going to basically say, you bow to my leadership and I will give you stuff. That sounds kind of familiar too. You just bow to my leadership and I'll give you stuff. Positions of authority and money and land. Just do what I'm telling you to do and keep your mouth shut and I'll make it worth your while. He'll be so intimidating that world leaders are going to submit to him so they can keep their land and their money. So the Antichrist is going to be willful and arrogant and profane and perverted and motivated by power and worshiping the God of military might. But in verse 40, conflict begins. Let's read these last verses. Verse 40 says, At the time of the end, we're going right down near the end of time before Christ comes. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. The king of the north shall come against him, like a whirlwind, with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships. And he shall enter countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. He shall also enter the glorious land, that's Israel. And many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver, over all the precious things of Egypt. Also the Libyans and Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. But news from the east and the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. And he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. Conflict begins here in verse 40. We've seen the character of the Antichrist, now is conflict. The Antichrist has come in peaceably. He has apparently solved problems in the Middle East with his treaty with Israel. He's become the protector of Israel. Then it all begins to fall apart. There's a rebellion sometime, this is just my opinion, sometime during the tribulation, Men to say it's my opinion because the Bible doesn't pinpoint the exact time of this. My father used to jokingly call it Bunyan theology. 
And this is, this, this is just, just my opinion. Others may disagree. But I believe that this rebellion against the Antichrist rule is going to come up during the tribulation, during the first half of the tribulation. And, and I'll explain why in just a moment. And there'll be a coalition of nations from the north and a coalition of nations from the south that come against the Antichrist. Directions in the Bible are always given in their relationship to Israel. So he's talking about the south of Israel and north of Israel. So they're going to come from the area of Africa and from northern areas, which we believe to be from other passages of Scripture, to be Russia and her allies. Hold your place here and look back at Ezekiel chapter 38. Ezekiel is the book right in front of Daniel, so you back up about 20 pages if you've got the same size print in your Bible as I do, and you're going to be back there about, uh, about Ezekiel 38. Ezekiel 37, which we're not going to read today, but it speaks of the regathering of Israel into her land. You may have heard people talk about the, the valley of dry bones and the bones coming back together and, and, uh, and, uh, and, and, and God saying, this is like what I'm going to do to the nation of Israel. That story is in verse, or chapter 37. So when we come to chapter 38 here in Ezekiel, well, I just want to read just a few verses, 38 and 39, deal with this whole big war. But just a few interesting verses. Uh, the first five, Ezekiel 38. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog. Gog is a person of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. All three of those names, Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and Magog, are ancient names for the region of the world we today call Russia. And the Soviet Union. And he said, Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Etubal. I will turn you around, put hooks in your jaws, and lead you out with all your army horses and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya. And remember the modern name for Persia? 1931, Persia changed its name to Iran. Iran, Ethiopia, and Libya are all with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer with all of its troops, the house of Togarma, both of those names, Gomer and Togarma, are the eastern end, uh, now today, the eastern end of the modern-day country of Turkey and Armenia and, uh, and, and northern Syria and pieces of Iraq. Gomer and the troops, the house of Togarma from the far north and all of its troops, many people are with you. Interesting thoughts. Then look at verse 10. Thus says the Lord God, on that day it shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind and you will make an evil plan. You will say, I will go up against a land of unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates. Uh, this reference, as you look further on, that those people he's talking about, and unwalled villages and peaceful people dwelling without walls, that's Israel. They're going to be attacking Israel, you will see from the context of these later, of these later verses. So let me put this together for you again, a little bit more Bunyan theology here. My, my personal opinion, simply this. The peace treaty that the Antichrist makes with Israel at the, that starts the beginning of the tribulation is going to infuriate the Muslim world. And they are going to rise up in rebellion against the Antichrist and his rule. 
And this coalition of Muslim nations, Iran, Iraq, Turkey, Egypt, Libya, all of those nations that are mentioned there in league with Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, Russia, this coalition of Muslim nations with the help of Russia are going to attack Israel. Israel is going to be living in peace because the Antichrist has made their treaty with them. They can rebuild the temple. They're practicing the sacrifices. All is going smoothly from their perspective politically. But this coalition of Muslim nations with the help of Russia are going to attack. So it makes it so interesting what's going on right now as these coalitions of nations continue to be developed. But, according to our passage here, the Antichrist and his military war machine are going to win. Remember we saw in one of the, when it talked about the, the Antichrist as the little horn back in Daniel chapter 7, and there are ten horns, and then one little horn comes up right in the middle of them and crushes three of them? I think it's a reference to this war again. The Antichrist and his military war machine are going to win. And once he wins, I believe he will consolidate his power once and for all, so he thinks. My guess is at that time is when he's going to cancel his treaty with Israel. He's going to set himself up in the glorious land, as we read here, Israel. And it says in verse 35, or for, sorry, 45, he is going to, he is going to establish his palace between the seas, that would be the Mediterranean and the Dead Sea, and the glorious holy mountain, which is the reference to Mount Zion. What is between the Mediterranean and the, and the Dead Sea and, and, and Mount Zion? It's Jerusalem, which we've seen from the New Testament. That's where he's going to set himself up as God. So I believe the, the Antichrist will cancel his treaty with Israel. He'll set himself up in the glorious land in, in Jerusalem. He'll declare himself to be God. He'll demand that everyone worship him. Revelation tells us that the Antichrist is at some point going to receive a deadly wound, and he's going to be healed from that. Virtually comes back from the dead, and everyone's going to marvel and bow to him. Just have a hunch again, a little more Bunyan theology here. Perhaps he gets the wound in this war. Just a thought. And then he will annihilate all the religions of the world, and he will demand that everyone bows down to him. But I love that little word in verse at the end of verse 45, yet, yet he shall come to his end, and no one will help him. The Antichrist is doomed. When will this happen? The only possible answer, the only logical answer, the only scriptural answer is at the Battle of Armageddon. The Antichrist's war machine, as great as it is, is no match for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The Apostle Paul in Romans 11.26, quoting from Zechariah 12, he says that the Lord is going to return to Mount Zion, and he says, Israel will look on him whom they have pierced. And all Israel, everyone who survived the horrors of the tribulation, all Israel will be saved. They will finally recognize nationally that Jesus Christ is indeed the Messiah, and Revelation 11.35 will be fulfilled. Israel will have been refined and purified, and the time of their chastisement for their rebellion and rejection of the Lord Jesus will be over. As verse 38 said, What has been determined shall be done. So at the end of all this, Israel will be purified. The Antichrist will be destroyed. And Jesus Christ 
will be glorified. We have, folks, a God who has written history before it happens. As we've seen, we've quoted it many times through our study here in Isaiah 46, from ancient times, he has declared the things that have not yet been done. His purposes will stand. This is an incredibly awesome prophecy. You can see why the demons were fighting the angels to get this message to Daniel. This is an awesome prophecy. I believe we are on the edge of the fulfillment of these things. Jesus Christ is coming perhaps soon, and I believe we are seeing even this week the coalition of nations in Ezekiel 38 beginning to form. What will happen? I don't know. How will all happen? I don't know. But you're seeing that coalition of nations beginning to form. The time of the end is upon us. We are not day setters, you know that, but neither are we sticking our heads in the sand, ignoring the times in which we live. Which brings us to an all-important question. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Are you ready for the return of the Lord? Don't wait. Be ready for the return of the Lord. An old, old hymn about the coming of Christ was titled, What If It Were Today? Jesus is coming to earth again. What if it were today? Coming in power and love to reign. What if it were today? Coming to claim his chosen bride, all the redeemed and purified, over this whole earth scattered wide. What if it were today? Satan's dominion will soon be o'er. Oh, that it were today. Sorrow and sighing shall be no more. Oh, that it were today. Then shall the dead in Christ arise, caught up to meet him in the skies. When shall these glories meet our eyes? What if it were today? Faithful and true, will he find us here, if he should come today? Watching in gladness and not in fear, if he should come today? Signs of his coming multiply. Morning light breaks in eastern sky. Watch, for the time is drawing nigh. What if it were today? Glory, glory, joy to my heart will bring. Glory, glory, when we shall crown Christ King. Glory, glory, haste to prepare the way. Glory, glory, Jesus will come someday. Let's pray. Father, we are just absolutely overwhelmed at this incredible prophecy. No wonder the demons were fighting your angels to get this message to Daniel. That tells in such precise detail what the Antichrist will be like, what he's going to do, what's going to happen. And we see from so many other passages of Scripture, so many other uh, points of revelation, we certainly don't have all the details, but we certainly see the overall flow of what's going to take place. And Lord, we cannot help but think that the time is drawing near. No one can set a date. No one knows exactly. We know you can put the brakes on and slow down some of these geopolitical things happening. We also know, Lord, you can hit the accelerator and it can happen really fast. So Lord, help us as we go through our week and our work to remind ourselves every day of the soon coming of Christ and ask ourselves, what if it were today? May we be busy about your work, 
serving you and loving you, witnessing to our friends and loved ones. Lord, we just pray that you would help us as we live in these last days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.